All right, that's it. Huh? Who are you, huh? What do you want from me? Build it. He will come. If you build it. If you build it. Well, good morning again, Hope. Um, I, I feel like we're close. We're close to a season where Iowa feels more like heaven and not so froze over completely. We totally could have cut that clip sooner. I just like to remember that things will start growing again soon out of the ground. So that's a great reminder. Um, glad you're here to worship. My name is Eli. I'm the discipleship minister here at our Ankeny campus. And right now we are in the middle of the book of Mark, studying the gospel of Mark, Jesus's life as a part of our 12 books of the Bible in 12 months message series that is 2019 for us here at Hope, uh, where we're hoping to become a more biblically fluent church. And, and we're calling this month Miracle March as we explore the different miracles that Jesus performs in the book of Mark. And that can be a sticking point for, for a lot of people where, you know, the, the, the teachings of Jesus, that's great, um, uh, the, the philosophy, I suppose, but the miracles actually can be a little bit hard to, to relate to, you know, this supernatural stuff. So the first week of March, Pastor Scott talked to us about Jesus calling his disciples for the first time, uh, welcoming them to a new way of living life, seeing life as fishers of men, during our Ash Wednesday services around here, which were awesome. Pete Smith, our youth and family director, talked to us all about the extraordinary, the unexpected relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Last week, Scott talked to us about uh, Jesus calming the wind and the waves and having authority over the storms uh, in life, but literally as well. And, and this week, again, we see examples of Jesus performing miracles, and, and we, we, uh, you, can, you can relate to that one or two ways. You can, you can ignore it, you can try and get along with Jesus without all that stuff. It would be a lot easier, a lot more convenient to have a Jesus you didn't have to reconcile supernatural stuff with. Uh, there was even during the Enlightenment a group of theologians who tried to do that, develop an entire theology of relating to Jesus without all the supernatural stuff because it would just be a lot more convenient, a lot easier. And they realized that you can't do that. You just can't divorce Jesus from his miracles. 25% of the recorded activity of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is just physically healing people. There are 34 detailed accounts of miracles that Jesus performs in the four gospel accounts of his life, and that doesn't include all the other times in the Bible where it says things like Jesus went throughout all their towns curing all kinds of diseases and casting out demons. You just can't have a Jesus that isn't miraculous. It doesn't work that way. Not to mention the, the greatest miracle that we're, we're building up to through the month of Lent, the season of Lent, his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is an extraordinary, miraculous person, son of God, who, who we, don't, we don't get much of. It's a very short story if you try to take all the miracles away from Jesus' life. So the other option, if we can't ignore it, is to get curious, to explore, to actually press in and investigate how might the miracles of Jesus inform my life today and the way that I interact with, with God, with the people around me, and what, that, what does that look like for me to do? 
Now, one, one, of, the, uh, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, um, uh, who I, I quote frequently, he he's a pro, was a prolific Christian author, wrote dozens of books on theology and the Christian faith. He wrote a book called Miracles where he explores this topic, and in it he says that nothing can seem extraordinary until you have discovered what is ordinary. And what he's saying here is that you and I have, have a very ordinary perspective on the world around us. We, we see things from one point of view. We, we, have, we have certain expectations in our life, you know, and that was certainly true for Jesus' day. At the same time, we, we, we tend to think that because they were, lived 2,000 years ago, they had a little bit more of a simplistic perspective. Well, when Jesus enters into the, the room where he's been asked to perform a healing in Mark chapter 5, which is where we're going to explore today. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Mark chapter 5. When he comes into Jairus' daughter's room where he's been asked to provide healing, and he says to the people who are there, she isn't dead, she's only asleep, they laugh at him. They laugh at Jesus because he has said something extraordinary about an ordinary circumstance, that, that death is an ordinary part of the human experience. And so when somebody walks into the room where somebody has died and says, there's more happening here, this isn't it, this isn't the end, the ordinary response is to be skeptical. And to say, that's ridiculous. You're doing something that confronts my point of view. Miracles confront the ordinary. Miracles confront the ordinary. This extraordinary Jesus we follow is trying to infuse our lives with an extraordinary perspective on life, on creation. But not all of us have an easy time accepting that. When the extraordinary confronts our ordinary way of living life, it pushes on us in a certain kind of way. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And a big part of Jesus' ministry is actually making us feel uncomfortable with how we see the world in an ordinary point of view. So in the, in the clip we watched earlier from the movie Field of Dreams, uh, Ray Kinsella, the character played by, uh, by Kevin Costner, is, is asked, compelled by this disembodied voice to, to build a baseball field in the middle of his cornfield out in eastern Iowa. And uh, I've been there. I love going to Dyersville. It's a fun tour. Um, I think I'll go back this summer. It actually turns out it's the 30th anniversary of the Field of Dreams, which uh, makes me feel something. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what it makes me feel right now, but 30 years ago. So they're going to do a big summer thing uh, out there. But uh, it's a great place to visit if you've never been. Uh, and, and this this way that the character perceives what's happening to him is an extraordinary way of living what he has come to accept as an ordinary life. He doesn't feel content living the ordinary life that he's got, and he feels like this is calling him into something more, something extraordinary, but he's met with a lot of skepticism. His neighbors start laughing at him, ridiculing him, and even his own family does not get what he is doing. They seem like he is wasting his time, and they, they, they give him a hard time about it. So let's go ahead and watch this clip about how Ray's family perceive what's happening in his life. about what I said, and I'm just trying to help. I know. So I thought you two were going to watch some game. Because <laughs> it's not really a game, it's more like a practice. See, there's only eight of them, so they can't play a real game. Eight of what? 
them. Who them? Them, them. Well, you don't see him? Karen, honey, uh, what are you watching? The baseball man. Baseball? Do you see the baseball man right now? Of course I do. Wait, you, you really don't see him? I don't think it's very polite to try to make other people feel stupid. Mom, wh wait a minute. Mom, wait a minute. Dee, Dee, wait. You don't see these people? It's not funny, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to um, some people between services, and, and I feel like I should clarify, because now that this is so, such an old movie, the baseball people aren't, they're, they're deceased former ball players who come out of the cornfield. If you haven't seen the movie, I, I apologize. People were telling me I've never seen Field of Dreams, and if you're from Iowa, go watch the movie. It's, it's in Iowa. So that's why they couldn't see him. And I think that that's, that's, that's an extraordinary telling perspective on how we typically approach life. If there's something extraordinary happening around us, maybe there are things miraculous happening around us all the time that we just don't see, we don't perceive because we have become far too comfortable in our ordinary way of looking at life. And so we even look past and through and around things that are extraordinary all the time. And we, we, we miss what God is up to supernaturally around us because of our own spiritual blindness. This is how Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 13 when he's, he's describing his ministry, what he is trying to do, what he's helping people along to see as he prepares people to have a relationship with God forever. He quotes the prophet Isaiah and he says, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they have closed their eyes. So their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. I think that's an important last line, let me heal them. That there are things that Jesus might even be wanting to do in your life today, but we have shut our eyes and, and hardened our hearts against God's extraordinary activity because we, are, we want the world to be convenient, to be safe, to be predictable, ordinary. And God says, my, my ministry, my life, your relationship with Jesus is extraordinary, is miraculous, if you, if you can open your eyes to see it that way. And so that's why miracles are so important to the life of Jesus Christ, because He is teaching us and showing us a new way of seeing the world that we don't see yet, a new perspective, because Jesus was present at creation. Jesus knows more about the world that He made, and He wants to show that to you. Again, this is C.S. Lewis in, in the book Miracles where he is describing this phenomenon. He says, nature is being lit up by a light from beyond nature. Someone is speaking who knows more about her than can be known from inside her. Jesus, because he was outside of creation and, and can see all of the information that we can't, is trying to show you something about the way the world really is, that this is an extraordinary creation where in a relationship with Jesus, anything is possible if you're open to it, if you're open to receiving what God wants to do miraculously in and through your life all the time, that that is possible, that Jesus is giving new information to you about the way the world works and especially about what he wants the world to become. 
The restored creation that, that Jesus is pursuing through His death and resurrection on the cross involves something way beyond the natural world. And He's trying to prepare you, prepare your hearts for what it will be like when, when eventually one day all of our hope is fulfilled in heaven. If you can't get comfortable with, with a heavenly reality today, how will you be comfortable with it in eternity? And that's what Jesus is doing through the miraculous and through the supernatural. So let's, let's try to locate ourselves in this, in this story in Matthew ch- or Mark chapter 5. Again, I would encourage you to open there because that's, we're going to look at all of it and not just the selection that we read this morning. Because what Mark does, Mark's gospel is incredibly dense. It's short. It's to the point because Mark is writing to a Jewish audience who, who knows all of these places and names, and he doesn't really need to explain himself a whole lot because the people who are reading initially Mark's gospel would have known all of these locations and, and all of the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff. So we want to explore this and get inside the story a little bit. Mark chapter 4, which is where we were last week, it says that Jesus and his disciples were sailing on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, in Luke's gospel, it's called the Lake of Kinneret. It's the same body of water, depending on the Greek or Hebrew language that you're working with. Uh, and it's a good-sized body of water. It's actually about 10 miles across, 33 miles around. And this is where Jesus and his disciples were sailing out to sea in Mark chapter 4 when the giant storm erupts. They're on their boat, uh, and Jesus calms the wind and the waves. And then in Mark chapter 5, it tells us that they have sailed back to, arrived back at Capernaum. And Capernaum is, is, a, is a critically important city in the life of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm really jealous of Pastor Scott right now. That's where he is, touring the Holy Land. So has anybody else been? I know it's a phenomenal experience, and uh, my parents are raising their hands. I know they've been, um, and that's awesome. I really want to go one day because I feel like you can't, it's, it's really hard to get a, a perspective on this story unless you've been there. Jesus lived a lot of his young adult life in the city of Capernaum. In Mark chapter 2, verse 2, it says that that's Jesus' home, where his house was. This is where Peter was from. This is where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount outside of the city of Capernaum. This is where Jesus called his first disciples, that Peter and, and James and John and Andrew were fishing the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where he came and, and called them to be fishers of men. Peter was from there where Jesus healed his mother. Je- Jesus was living in Capernaum as kind of a, a base of operations for the early part of his ministry and then going out from Capernaum to do different things and coming back to Capernaum to be at home before he would eventually wind up in Jerusalem, which was well south of here. This is where Jesus was located for years. This is where Jesus lived and had community. But archaeologists know that there were only about a thousand people living in Capernaum at the time of Christ. It wasn't a big city. It wasn't a huge town. Only a few people, a fishing village, really. And Jesus, for years, has been investing in this community. When He calls His first disciples, they leave their family fishing business. Well, I wonder how that might have affected the local community, that people might be paying attention to a guy who's preaching massive sermons just outside of town to hundreds of people, performing healings and miracles, and over the course of time, becoming a pretty well-known figure in this town. I grew up in a, in a small town in eastern Nebraska, and, and many of you probably did too, grew up in small towns in Iowa. Not a lot happens that you don't really know about or hear about from other folks around town, and that's kind of how Jesus was living his life. And I feel like when we, when we take too high a, a level perspective of Jesus, we, we tend to create the, this, this mystery around his life, which there is. I mean, obviously, being the Son of God, there's a supernatural element to it, but the, the quote from Lewis that says that we don't really understand the extraordinary until we understand the ordinary, it's hard to understand the extraordinary nature of Jesus' life when we forget he was an ordinary guy. 
He was an ordinary person who had a job, who had neighbors, who had friends, who had family members living in Nazareth just outside of Capernaum. He, he, he was a part of this community that people knew who he was. And so when we can actually put ourselves into this, this situation, this life, it, it brings it down to an ordinary level that then helps us to see all the extraordinary things that are happening from that place uh, of understanding. It's, it's almost like when you, when you see in the news um, some celebrity or famous person does something just ordinary, regular, and it, it sort of blows your mind a little bit, like, oh, this, this famous person, this celebrity is just an ordinary person like me and like you. They eat food, they put their pants on one leg at a time, and uh, they're, they're not anything different than, than we are. When I was in high school, um, part of my, my circle of friends, we did a youth group together at church. We um, you know, hung out after school, sports, things like that, um, show choir, band, all that stuff. Um, part of that circle was a young lady named Juliana, and her dad was the pastor of our church. Um, we kind of kept in touch after high school, learned where each other was doing in their lives in college. She went to college uh, in Nashville at Belmont University, where she met and then eventually married a young baseball player named Ben Zobrist, who was a minor leaguer at the time. Uh, not well known. There are thousands of minor league baseball players all around the country. And, and Ben would come back to Iowa City to meet the parents. And I got a chance to meet him one time when he was at our church, just shook his hand and said, hey, you know, you're Juliana's boyfriend. It's nice to meet you. What's it like to play, you know, double A baseball or whatever it was? It's pretty interesting. Now looking back on it, it's, it's kind of a funny memory because Ben Zobrist is this multiple World Series winning baseball player, most recently for my Chicago Cubs, the greatest sports team in the history of the world. Don't argue, you know it's true. All-star teams and, and a prolific hitter and an infield, he's this well-known baseball player, but when I met him, he was a, a Christian living life, getting to know his wife and, and living for Jesus, and that's still who they are. Uh, this is, these are pictures of Ben. It was his dream as a young guy growing up in Chicago that he would get to wear his Cubs uniform and ride his bicycle from his house to Wrigley Field to play baseball. And he does that pretty frequently, riding through his own neighborhood, talking to kids around town, and then going to play ball at Wrigley Field like it's any other job. And that's just who he is. And he and Juliana still live their lives for Jesus, and they love sharing their faith with people. You know, that, and that's, that's bringing the extraordinary down to our level to realize that, that ordinariness lets us see the extraordinary things of life in a little bit more of a clear way. So, so Jesus... They, they're sailing on the Sea of Galilee, and they finally arrive back in Capernaum where a crowd gathers. And I think it's interesting that a crowd just appeared out of nowhere. But if you think about it, Jesus being a part of this community and the 12 disciples being a part of this community are out to sail at sea when a giant storm blows through the region. And there are other boats on the water too, and maybe they struggle to make it back to shore. And they're wondering, is Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher who a lot of people respect and follow, is he going to make it back safely? Is he okay? So when he finally arrives back on shore, a crowd gathers, probably glad to see him and his disciples back home again, and a man named Jairus comes and finds them in the crowd. Now this is interesting because this is one of the few rare times where a person who is directly impacted by one of Jesus' miracles is named. Typically when you see Jesus performing miracles, the person isn't named. There are only a couple of times, Bartimaeus, Peter's mom, Jairus, the rest of them are, are people from the crowd people we don't know their names. And so Mark is actually doing something here that lets us know a bigger part of the story, that Jairus, who is also, we know his title, is the official of the local synagogue. So the local Jewish religious leader is coming to Jesus. Now, there was only one synagogue in the city of Capernaum during Jesus' lifestyle, during his lifetime. 
So this is a, a, a Jewish religious leader coming to the most well-known Jewish teacher at the time. I have to think what Mark is helping us understand is that these two guys knew each other. They probably had known each other for quite a while. If they knew each other by name, they knew where to find him. They, they worked in the same field, giving religious counsel and advice to their small town together. I almost wonder if Jesus hadn't spent time in Jairus' house before, hadn't spent time with his daughter who Jairus comes and says she's dying, gets on his knees and says, Jesus, my daughter is dying. You have to come to my house and help. I don't think that these were strangers for Jesus. And so off they go. They, they, they leave uh, the, the docks and, and, and they're, they're on their way to Jairus' house and then something else happens. There's an interruption that Mark 5 tells us about. There had been a woman living in their town who was afflicted, it says, by a, by a hemorrhage, an issue of blood. She had been bleeding, and it says she had been like that for 12 years. And she had made her way into the crowd as Jesus and his disciples were on shore. And she, it says, had been suffering with this condition for 12 years at the hands of doctors who could do nothing for her. It said that she had spent all of her resources, all of her money, and gotten no relief, no treatment. Now, Mark is also doing something very important here because there, is, there was a religious law from the Old Testament in Leviticus 15 about her specific condition, that if there was a woman with this condition, she actually had to stay outside of the city. She couldn't be a part of the crowd. She couldn't be in the city. She was meant to be outside until the issue resolved itself, until she was healed. She had to be apart from the community, separated, outside. So what, what the readers of Mark would have seen as he's telling this story is here's a woman massively breaking these religious laws. She shouldn't be anywhere near this crowd, definitely not touching people, and that's what's happening. So, so she, her, her faith has compelled her. She, she is looking for her ordinary life. You know, her ordinary experience was pain. Her ordinary experience was loneliness, isolation, separate from, from her community, and she, she believes that if she can get close enough to Jesus just to touch the fringes of his robe, that, that she will get the healing that she's been looking for. That's, that's her belief, that she wants something extraordinary to confront her ordinary way of living life. And that's what happens. She, she gets into the crowd. She's able to touch Jesus' clothes. And as soon as she does, Mark 5 tells us that she is totally physically healed, that her physical condition is completely taken care of, gone, totally restored physically. Now, what could have happened is Jesus might, might have just ignored this and kept on going, might have not paid attention to it, might not have known, but he stops. Jesus stops the whole crowd, and he said, who touched me? Somebody touched me. He says, I felt healing power come out of me and go into somebody else. Who was it? Now, either Jesus didn't know, and he's honestly asking who touched me, or him being God and omniscient, he probably knew what he was doing and wanting to help illustrate what's happening and, and, and heal further. Because here is a woman who, and maybe when she came forward and she said, it was me, I touched you and now I'm physically healed, I have to imagine that maybe other people in the crowd said, you're not supposed to be here. You're the, you, you belong outside. You're religiously unclean. You're not supposed to be a part of our community. And they might have recognized her. And Jesus puts her next to him and says, this woman's faith has made her well. She is no longer religiously unclean. She is no longer afflicted by, her, by her, her condition. She is a whole person physically. And what's Jesus doing? He's restoring her socially. 
He's restoring her emotionally, spiritually to her community. There is always something more going on behind the scenes of when Jesus performs a, a healing miracle for somebody. Often we focus on the, on the physical condition. The person's physical condition was taken care of. But that's not all Jesus wants to do. He wants this woman who has, been, who has not only been physically in pain, but socially, spiritually, and emotionally cut off from her community. He wants her to be restored socially, to be in a context of relationship, because that's far more important for Jesus. And so he stops everything to make sure that she is given the dignity that she has not had for 12 years of her life. Again, the, the, the miraculous confronts the ordinary. And for all of us, if we're looking to live a more extraordinary, miraculous life as followers of Christ, there might be no better way or easier way to do that than simply to miraculously, extraordinarily offer dignity and social inclusiveness to other people who everyone else says should be undignified, doesn't belong, they don't fit, cast them out and keep them off the side. We need to be inviting people in, just like Jesus did. That's That's miraculous. How extraordinary would it be for the people in your life who feel alone and lonely and isolated all of a sudden to feel invited in, to have community, to have relationships? That's extraordinary on its own. And, and, and Jesus, I think, is even saying that would be a miracle for somebody's life, to all of a sudden have relationships when they didn't have any before. Now, now that's all great. That's, that's, that's amazing what's happening. But what happened to Jairus? They were on their way to Jairus' house from the docks, and Jesus stopped, and they're, they're moving and they're walking, and I wonder almost in my mind, how far did Jairus get before he looked around and realized Jesus wasn't there anymore? All of a sudden, he's by himself walking to his house. It's an emergency. My daughter's dying, and now all Jairus sees is this crowd that has stopped, and Jesus is there talking to some, some lady, and he doesn't have a clue what's going on. He probably doesn't even care what he has asked for. They're on their way to do, and now he's just waiting, looking at his watch. Hurry, let's hurry this up. We've got to go. And his worst fears are realized when he is told by an attendant who comes from his house, it's too late. Your daughter has died. On the way, she died. You don't need to bother the, the teacher, the rabbi anymore. Another clue from Mark that they knew who he was and what was going on. How, how is Jairus supposed to feel in that moment? How would you feel if, if you did everything right? Jairus is saying, I went to Jesus. I got on my knees. I begged. I pleaded. Jesus said, okay. And we were walking. I thought Jesus was right here with me. We were going together. I was going to get. And all of a sudden, this woman who didn't ask, she just took, she stole the miracle, the healing that I needed for my daughter and interrupted Jesus on, my, on the way. How would you feel about that? How do you feel when, when you look around the world at you and other people's lives and you say, why, why does that person get the healing that I've been praying for in my life? Why does that person have the community that I wish I had, the job I wish I had, the, the, the family, the experiences? When, when, when you're praying for something and you see other people getting blessed, do you feel like maybe Jairus felt like, where was Jesus when all this is going on? Has he abandoned me? Has he just left me here to walk on my own and then to experience tragedy alone? What is going on here? What, what are you praying for right now that you want Jesus to, 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 to miraculously, extraordinarily impact in your life? And what questions are coming up for you? In the movie Field of Dreams, as, as Ray Kinsella is, is, is chasing these extraordinary pieces of, of living life, he ends up intersecting with the life of a formal, former baseball player named Archibald Moonlight Graham. 
And, and this was actually a real baseball player who, who lived. Moonlight Graham was a real person, uh, and, and the, the account of his life in the movie is accurate to the details of, of his own experience. He was a, uh, played a half an inning of baseball, never touched the ball, never got to hit, and ended up retiring and moving back to Chisholm, Minnesota, where he was a family doctor the rest of his life. So the details in the movie are, are accurate, and they use this movie to explore this same idea. What happens when, when you don't get to see your dreams come true? The miracles that you've been praying for, how do you reconcile that in yourself? So let's take a look and see how this conversation plays out. It was the last day of the season. Bottom of the eighth inning, we were way ahead. I'd been up with the club about, uh, oh, about three weeks, but I hadn't seen any action. Suddenly, old John McGraw points a bony finger in my direction and he says, right field. Yes, sir. I jumped up like I was uh, sitting on a spring, grabbed my glove, and ran out on the field. Did you get to make a play? I never hit the ball out of the infield. Game ended, the season was over. I knew they sent me back down. I couldn't bear the thought of another year in the minors. So I, I decided to hang them up. Oh, sit down. Thank you. So what was that like? It was like having this close to your dreams. And then watch them brush past you like a stranger in a crowd. At the time, you don't think much of it. You know, we just don't recognize the most significant moments of our lives while they're happening. Back then, I thought, well, there'll be other days. I didn't realize that that was the only day. And now, Ray Kinsella, I want to ask you a question. What's so interesting about a half an inning that would make you come all the way from Iowa to talk to me about it 50 years after it happened? I didn't really know till just now, but I think it's to ask you if you could do anything you wanted, if you could have a wish. And are you the kind of a man who could Grant me that wish. I don't know. I'm just asking. Well, you know, I... I never got to bat in the major leagues. I'd have liked to have that chance just once. To stare down a big league pitcher. To stare him down, and just as he goes into his wind-up, wink. Make him think you know something he doesn't. That's what I wish for. Chance to squint at a sky so blue that it hurts your eyes just to look at it. To feel the tingle in your arm as you connect with the ball. To run the bases, stretch a double into a triple, and flop face first into third. Wrap your arms around the bag. That's my wish, Reconcilla. That's my wish. As we watch these things and, and, and think about the miraculous nature of Jesus, the extraordinary confronting the ordinary, I wonder what, if you can hold in your mind, what, what that miracle is that you're praying for. And it, doesn't, it may not be something like, like physical healing. It, it might be. The number of people I've talked to you in this church about physical healing, it's, it's a real thing that we pray for and we expect God to do something. But maybe it's something is just life direction. You know, you felt like you were walking with Jesus and he was right there with you and all of a sudden he stopped and he's back there. And what's the delay? Why am I having to wait for something that I know is going to happen or want to happen eventually? And what are those questions that come to your mind? Is it, is it, where was God when this happened to me? 
what about my dreams? What about the miracle that, that I've been praying for and why am I not seeing it realized? Jesus actually overhears the attendant telling Jairus that his daughter had died. And that's where we pick up in our scripture reading. And in verse 35, it says that while he was still talking to her, so Jesus in the crowd is still talking to the woman who he healed and is restoring to the community, to this social relationship, he overhears Jairus being told that it's too late, your daughter has died, you don't need to bother the teacher anymore. And Jesus, is, his response is unique. It's interesting to me. He says this, he says, be not afraid only believe. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was Jairus, I don't think I would be afraid of anything in that moment. If anything, I'd be furious. I would be upset, angry even at Jesus, who, who was walking with me, ready to provide this miracle and, and let me down. So why does Jesus tell Jairus not to be afraid? What's going on here? Well, if you go back to Mark chapter 4, when Jesus calms the wind and the waves with his disciples on board, he says these exact same words. Why are you so afraid? Where is your faith? And so what Mark is doing is he's bookending these, these examples of Jesus calming the literal storms in our lives, the literal pain in our lives, the literal uh, anxieties and fears of our lives, and the figurative ones as well. And saying that all of the things that you're experiencing and feeling as a result of, of pain, of tragedy, of loss, of loneliness, all of those things come back down to your fear. What are you afraid of? See, when, when, when the miracles confront the ordinary of our lives, the ordinary posture most of us live our lives with is one of fear. That's how most people live their lives. What if my child gets sick and dies? What if my spouse loses their job? What if, what if we build a baseball field in the middle of a cornfield and lose our farm to the bank? What, what if? What might happen? And, and, and Jesus, I think, had seen Jairus live with a, with a sick daughter for too long who is afraid of what might happen when. I think the miracle that Jesus provided for Jairus was letting him wait, was giving him the opportunity to really feel how his fears were holding him back. We're keeping him captive to living an extraordinary life, to, to seeing Jesus' true miracles. Not the, He provided genuine, he raised this girl back from life. He provided the physical healing. But again, more than that, Jesus is allowing Jairus to come to terms with his fear, to be set free from the fear that he's living his life with. So he says these same words to the disciples, why are you afraid? Where is your faith? And it's in the most concerned, intentional way possible, not in a ridiculing, judgmental way at all. Genu Jesus is genuinely concerned for your condition to be one of freedom from fear. And it's the fears of our lives that will really hold us back, that will keep us in captivity from living an extraordinary life with God and for God. So Moonlight Graham actually gets to play on the field of dreams. His, his dream does come true. He, you know, travels back through time and space on this magical place in, in Iowa, and, and he's able to bat against major leaguers, and, and his dreams are realized. But that's when death comes knocking for Annie and, and Ray's little girl. Let's take a look. I don't know. Is she breathing? Should I get the car? I'm gonna call emergency. Annie, wait. What? 
Just wait. What do we got here? She fell. Child's choking to death. Yeah, right. Hold it steady now. <coughs> Hot dog. Stuck in her throat. <laughs> oh, she'll be all right. She'll be turning handsprings before you know it. Thank you, Doc. No, son. Thank you. At a certain other point in the film, the character of Moonlight Graham says, I only got to be a ball player for five minutes, but if I had only been able to be a doctor for five minutes, that would have been a real tragedy. And I don't know where God is taking you in life right now. All of us are, are walking a journey with him by our sides and, and, and asking these questions of where do you want me to go, God, and, and, and being, be honest with him about your struggles, that these things are holding me back. And, and I think the, what, what his response would be for you is, you know, yes, there are these circumstances that are right in front of you, right at your feet. These tragedies, these, these, these pieces of pain, these bits of loneliness. And what Jesus really wants to heal, the miracle that he wants to give your life, is a freedom from the fear that's behind all of that. What is it that you're afraid of? What, what questions are you asking that start with, what if this happens? And bring those to God. Ask him honestly, why am I so afraid of fill in the blank? and see him really miraculously, extraordinarily confront the ordinary fears of everyday life. This is on the screen is a, another piece of prophecy about who Jesus is and what God is for us. I wanna invite you to stand as we're gonna close with our final song. Um, but before we do that, let's read out loud these words from the prophet Isaiah about the God who takes away our fears. Let's read this together. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. <laughs>